Welcome back to the MindWall podcast, the podcast where we talk about new and promising innovations in the mining industry, especially as it relates to electrification, digitization, and automation. I'm your host, MP Stradel, and I have the enviable job of finding and talking to people who have an opinion about the future of mining, and of course, also the resume to back that opinion up. Now, we've been regrouping for a month or two, strategizing on the right topics and the right people we want to talk about and talk to, and we're back with a lineup of guests that definitely won't disappoint. In today's podcast, we're talking transformation. In the buzzword bingo world of digitization, there are lots of people and, of course, even more opinions about the real role of innovation and technology in in the mind of the future. And I'm delighted to introduce you today to Gavin Yates, mining futurist at Gavin Yates Consulting and a leading voice that stands out from the crowd. He's a man who's led the development of the technology strategy for BHP Bulletin Group only a few years ago and has held a few roles since. And as a geologist by trade, he knows a thing or two about mining and even more about innovation and technology. So Gavin, welcome to the MineWall podcast. And we look forward to having our minds warped. <laughs> yeah, thanks very much, MP. I've introduced you briefly, but can you tell us a little bit more about the world of a futurist in general and what it really means and how it is that you uh, that you came to grab such a title? So, so who's Gavin <laughs> and how did, how did you become a mining futurist? Okay. <laughs> yeah, well, I, uh, I've been in the industry for about uh, 40 years and started off as, as you said as a geologist in that I, I was i was in a iron ore mine in south australia and uh, and by a sort of confluence of events ended up uh, uh, getting appointed mine manager when i was only about five years out of university and uh, wow. that sort of really opened my eyes to uh, to you know the the industry at at its real hub which is operations and whilst i was in in that operation, I had the good fortune to be able to do all sorts of things and uh, wasn't really heavily managed. So I was able to implement change and try things and fail and uh, some of them were successful and and I learned a lot about innovation there. And even at that time, we were doing stuff, uh, and this was very early, you know, it's 1980, 1981, and we were doing stuff what would be described now as machine learning and um, we were using a mainframe and uh, mm. pretty rudimentary tools but it was uh, the same algorithms that are used in machine learning today sure. essentially yeah. Um, yeah. so and from there I went into uh, an internal consulting role with BHP then into a d- development of a new mine which was Cannington up in Queensland uh, which was mm-hmm. a great uh, to take a take a deposit from the expiration when I started on it, there was only a few drill holes, right through to uh, designing the operation. And then I got asked to be on the leadership team during early operation. And they gave me the role of manager IT. And Mm. uh, I was involved in implementing everything from, you know, wide area comms, local area comms, the SAP system, the recruitment system, the fly and fly out system, the operational system, the underground, all of the uh, technical systems, etc. So that was a great a way to understand all of the processes needed to run a mine, yeah. um, and and we did some innovative stuff there in the 
in the digital side with a we called it a mine information center which brought all of the data together and integrated it in you know that was back in the sort of late 1990s and the buzzword mm-hmm. then was data warehousing using uh, an oracle system uh, that we heavily customized from there i went into a corporate role and was in governance effectively and leading bhp's technical arm of geologists mining engineers and metallurgists and later included technology and um, and maintenance and operations in that so I was the global lead for um, the mineral resource development then um, operations it's interesting uh, I I've seen this before maybe you can corroborate what I think is interesting evidence and that is that many geologists seem to make this leap from you know <laughs> rock licking to working with data and, and, and becoming involved in information management and, and even information strategy. I think that, you know, to my mind, it's because geologists by nature uh, are comfortable with working with lots of information and, and different kinds of information and making connections between different data sets. Do you think that's uh, an, an accurate assessment? Yeah, yeah, I think so. I think geologists are, um, they're good with ambiguity. They're good with data as observation points but they don't get too anchored on them that's how you interpret that data and we all know data's got its flaws and uh, geologists uh, more than most understand um, that you know there's uncertainty around every data point and there's error as well i was involved in recruiting uh, people at the more senior levels and as you go up the the critical thing was how people dealt with ambiguity and i think geologists deal with that pretty naturally because everything's yeah. pretty ambiguous. <laughs> yes, just ask the mining engineers, they'll tell you. <laughs> yeah, yeah, well, you know, mining engineers do struggle with uh, with ambiguity sometimes. <laughs> Kevin, you went from uh, from that uh, technology-focused role into, into strategy and advisory uh, roles and then eventually to where you are right now. Yeah, that's right. Um, I guess I, I took, uh, call it, semi-retirement um, for want of a better word but uh, I still was active and and wanted to hand back something to the industry and and people were often ringing me up asking me advice and those sorts of things so I ended up doing some advisory both to mining companies but also to a lot of METS companies who were mm-hmm. struggling with a little bit of what we're going to talk about today which is really they got a great idea, they got a great product, but how do they get traction with the mining companies? And as the mining companies were looking at them, uh, were they positioned correctly and those sorts of things. So, so I did a fair bit of work with METS companies. Also did some training, ran some workshops for METS Ignited around Australia on digital disruption, yeah. trying to prepare them for, for where it's coming. And that was really good because I actually involved my millennial son uh, because I said I wasn't going to do digital dis- disruption without a millennial in the room. So, <laughs> so that was really good to do. So, so maybe that, that actually does lead us into uh, the first thing I wanted to ask you, and that is just let's get uh, some clarity on definitions here. People talk about digitization, and then they sometimes use digitalization as a synonym for that, uh, or, or computerization to use even older language digital transformation and digital disruption. Can you give us kind of a, a, a thumbnail sketch of what do those terms really mean? 
maybe it starts with digitization, go to transformation and then digital disruption. Yeah, so I think everyone's sort of trying to describe a journey here. Um, mm -hmm. And digitization is really just uh, digitizing what you do. Uh, and we're seeing that we're pretty much in the middle of that right now. We're digitizing pretty much what we're doing. Um, yeah. So that's whether it's a automated truck, we've still got a truck, it's still doing what it used to do, but we've right. just, um, we've digitized it. As we move towards the transformation end, it's about doing things differently. And then as you go to the disruption, the opportunities there is enormous, but it usually involves a complete change to, I tend to use the word, the business model. It, it involves organizations, operation, operating models. If you're going to disrupt, it's a bit like Uber did to the taxi industry. So, so, so would, would it be fair to say that digitization and even transformation happens to a company, but disruption happens to an industry? Pretty much, yep. Yeah. And, you know, we can point to, you know, uh, net, what Netflix did to the to the video industry or Uber did right. to the taxi industry as yeah. examples of disruption. I've got an interesting quote from a paper that you have on your website, which is, uh, it's kevinyates.com, is that right? Yeah, that's right. And, yeah. and, and you've got a paper there about digital disruption. You, you wrote this, you said, there are numerous uh, trials and, and uh, pilots underway in the industry, but most are isolated, lack integration or support for the underlying business process. There's a lack of leadership, vision and commitment to drive the transformation forward. And many within the industry are preferring to wait for critical uh, pieces of technology to be developed before they begin. The industry lacks the necessary skills, capability, capacity and the business process to deliver digital transformation. Now, some would say that's that's a bleak <laughs> assessment and others would say, yep, that's pretty much fair. Would you say this is still the case uh, today? Uh, ab absolutely. I've written in other papers. That was from Digital Disruption, which was an OzIMM bulletin article I wrote uh, right. some time ago, really, now. But um, uh, the, the I've said previously also that we're in a world of what I call pilot purgatory, um, <laughs> where we, we continue to do a pilot, but we don't actually understand what success looks like and even right. if we're successful, we haven't got the commitment to move to the next layer. That particular quote also points to a number of things, I think, that are pretty interesting. One is the lack of process to implement technology. We have, sure. you know, we have a lot of people playing around, trialling, doing even crowdsourcing, but there isn't a defined process that even when they're successful, to actually implement that into an operation. Um, and then the other thing is that most of this is done in a piecemeal siloed fashion. Um, so um, we, we're not seeing the end-to-end -end mine of the future, if you like, being articulated and a coordinated uh, plan to work towards that end. You know, um, we sort of almost need the um, John F. Kennedy sort of we will be on the moon by the end of the decade type challenge yeah. out there. 
And we all then roll up our sleeves and work towards that. The moment we're all, you know, people are working hard, but they're working hard on little bits and pieces, and mm-hmm. and we we just haven't got the glue to put it all together. So America had the benefit of a JFK there, but if you look at the typical mining company, whether it's at a corporate level or or uh, otherwise, who is that person who carries the vision? That's a really good point, and I'm seeing there are some CEOs who are how would I say, charismatic and waving their arms, making futuristic statements, a lot of them at the moment about uh, ESG and and, uh, what the company's going to do in that respect. But what I'm seeing is a disconnect then between that charismatic um, personality-based leadership at the top and Mm -hmm. the connection with what's actually happening on the bottom and that's where to get real transformation and and indeed disruption, you have to actually change your whole operating model, your organisation structure, and very specifically, you have to change your incentives. So, you know, if you say you're going to, let's take a very topical one at the moment, which is around ESG, we're going to electrify, let's go electric, we're going to decarbonise the mine. So the CEO is waving his arms saying, we're going to be decarbonised by some point in time. And the poor old engineer at the mine face is still being beaten up over capital cost and operating cost. Yeah. And his only decision-making tool is really an NPV. Um, they overlay a whole lot of other, I guess, um, scorecard activities on top. But yep. to make the decision whether I go electric or I go diesel, um, he'll go diesel because that's the tools he's got. That's what he knows. And he's being driven around risk of ramp up and all those sorts of things. So we, we're getting, and I've seen this in a number of companies just recently, where mm-hmm. on the very day the CEO's arm waving about what they're going to do in the future, the engineers on the ground are making different decisions. <laughs> yeah, certainly I've seen that uh, that also. And and it's interesting to me that uh, I won't name names, but uh, I visited a mining company a few years ago. I won't even mention the continent. And there was a big amount of public noise that was made by the, uh, the chairman of the company about uh, some specific operational targets that were going to be achieved. And yet the chief of operations uh, or the COO was... Uh, absolutely not on that same page and they would get a consulting company after consulting company to do mining studies and to confirm nope this is not really possible but uh, you know there's no going against the, the 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 chairman and i thought to myself this is probably one of the results of a lack of an integrated vision and an organizational model that supports that vision as opposed to a promise and reporting afterwards. And and I think there's probably two other aspects that are worth touching on here, and I've written about these um, separately. One is the best place to do innovation is in a new mine. You know, it's always, you know, uh, an existing mine, um, the footprint is, and the equipment is selected, the flow sheet's collect, selected, everything's set in concrete, literally, you know. Um, it's really hard to do radical change to that. Um, but in a new mine where you're starting with a blank sheet of paper, unfortunately, we go off to an EPCM uh, engineering company and we goal them uh, We goal them on minimal, minimal risk. 
um, getting a ramp up in a time uh, production um, uh, bonuses around completion, etc. And if if those are the incentives you put in place, mm. you're going to get the resulting behaviours where they're going to use what they've always done because they know it works. Um, mm. They already have uh, the drawings. Um, they can recycle and, uh, and and you're not getting the level of innovation. Um, I think if we're going to innovate, we've got to, we've got to come up with a, a different way of um, developing and engineering new projects. Mm-hmm. Um, and probably the the other thing I would say is um, where and when when I did the strategy work at BHP, I actually raised this with the senior execs, and they were they were very um, thought provoked and uh, reflected internally around how we deal with failure, because okay. the mining industry doesn't deal with failure very well, yeah. um, and it really uh, tends to shoot the uh, the the people involved particularly the messengers um and um and if you're in that environment and i've also had explained to me recently too um there's a bit of bit of psychology here but um if you if you're in an extremely high paying job which people are um you know we heard here that uh, graduate mining engineers were getting 200 grand plus a sign-on bonus right if you're in a job like that, um, there is no other industry where you can get that sort of payment yeah. today. So yeah. you're in a world where you want to protect your job. And the idea of actually step putting your neck out and stepping out and taking some risks is mm. uh, is something that the, the average person in a mining company being paid so well, they're they're going to think twice about rocking the boat. Hmm. So, um, so I think, I think there's a few things. they are being paid to rock the boat, right? Correct. But I don't think, I, I haven't seen too many uh, positions where that's been explicit. And uh, uh, I think most of the time, can we ramp this project up, get the tons out, get the grade up? You know, it's short term. It tends to be short term. And, and to my mind, that leads to a probably unhealthy situation where you only have the uh, external companies and service providers to the mining industry who uh, engage in, uh, in innovation and, and new thinking and, and only brings that to the, to the mines in the cases where money is to be made. Now, of course, I, I think that's a wonderful system in the sense that the free market is a, is a great test of, of ultimate success. However, I find that that it's only lately that it seems to be the, uh, there's more openness towards partnership between mm. mines and uh, and providers, and even in between uh, competing mining companies who maybe do the same kind of thing. Yeah, you're you're absolutely right. The the idea of partnering to develop some technology um, has been really overlooked. A lot of mining companies want to be second. Yeah. and they want to buy it off the shelf. It's got to be mm. TRL9 off the shelf. So I had the good fortune to work with 
um, BHP or led the team at BHP that worked with Caterpillar to develop the autonomous trucks, for instance. And mm -hmm. we we used a TRL process to do that. And Cat's job was to get it to a level where we could uh, we could first um, run a a trial in their car park with uh, with four drives, then move it to a single truck at their proving ground, then move it to our one of our operations but in a uh, in a bunded area on on reclaim and then we gradually expanded that to four trucks now that was done in a completely isolated from operations and no operations mm -hmm. input at that point but we were working heavily with cat at that point we then started to bring operations into it and then gradually handed it over for the for the first trial in an operating site in, in WA. So, and then that scaled and, and the rest sort of history. But you you need a process of working with your vendor to mm. get to the point. What I would say there is in 2000 and probably seven or eight, Cat came to us and said, we have an autonomous truck. We have a truck that drives by itself. Yeah. And we said, great, let's go and have a look and let's, put it in but it took the best part of 10 years to actually turn the technology that of a truck driving by itself into a productive fleet and that's the that's the piece that we need to team up between the mining company and the uh, the vendor to yeah. you know and it shouldn't take 10 years but it did because there's a whole lot of interfaces and systems and and process there that um, that you have to to try and integrate into an you know an autonomous truck in a manned environment was probably the most complex sort of uh, yeah. if it was all auto yeah. autonomous it actually would have been easier. No, that's that's absolutely true. Uh, coming back to your uh, earlier comment about you know maybe the best place to test innovation is in a new operation because there you could design it that way. Yeah, I, I want to jump quickly to maybe a last topic that we could briefly uh, touch on, and that is the roles that one finds within a company. <clears throat> you know, uh, it's fairly easy to think of, of of the engineer who knows his discipline really well and can innovate from that uh, perspective of technical excellence. And then you lift that up one step uh, higher to interdisciplinary process optimization and, and, and innovation there whether that is through digital or, or any other means and so on. And you get to, to executive vision and leadership and, and organizational structural thinking and operational model thinking uh, and so on. But eventually you end up at the board and it's no secret that, you know, the typical board is not made up of uh, 30 year old technologists. Um, or millennials such as your son. So in your experience, are mining companies really serious about getting the right influence at the board level? And do they know how to speak to board members to get the buy-in at that level into these bigger transformational projects that will eventually be able to, to let the mining industry transform itself without uh, it being disrupted from left field by maybe some external company? It's a it's a really interesting question because a board's remit now is so broad, and so yeah. you will have board members that are, and necessarily so, are ESG experts. They're legal. They're accounting. 
Um, very few mining experts on a board. In in mining, there's very few digital experts on a board. Um, yeah. And I even found this at BHP. Um, often you had to move into, in presenting to the board or working with them on a strategy day, you would turn into teacher mode and mm. give them 101 um, of, you know, what is this mining method? What are the risks um, associated with the mining method? What are the advantages of it and why it was chosen? So that um, you you could, you know, the, the objective is, you know, ultimately they have to make a balanced decision. The objective of, of people presenting to boards and, um, and positioning decisions for boards is to leave the decision making up to them, but to make sure that they have had the opportunity to get as much information um, on the table and they know who to go to to clarify or question when they're not sure. And I think having the that sort of relationship with a board is, is really important. Um, mm. And I, I think we don't want boards coming down telling um, and and managing the business. Um, right. yes, but by the same token, I think we've got to be much better at presenting uh, information to boards in a, in a way that gives them all the information to make a decision. Often that's difficult, particularly if you're talking transformation. Um, yeah. Usually it comes down to a business case and there are different levels of certainty around the two cases. Yeah. And um, that tends to be where you run into strife in that you're proposing a change and sometimes they're big changes, uh, but the certainty with the disruption case or with the transformation case is a lot less than the existing case, obviously, because you know what you can deliver with the existing. I think we've got to be much better at presenting those cases and dealing with that uncertainty in the business case going forward, um, but also being realistic. And I think too much technology is focused on the tech, too, too many technology projects are focused too much on the technology, because they don't fail because of the technology, they fail because yeah. of the, the people and the process and the operating model. And I don't think we've been uh, ambitious enough in mm. our transformation of the business side of it. When we planned this uh, discussion, you also talked about uh, <clears throat> integration inside of the mining gate itself, you know, uh, interdisciplinary integration, you know, um, how do we work against silos within the mining company, never mind beyond in the mining companies, trying to obtain a uh, mining to demand uh, a kind of organizational design? And I'd love to maybe at a later stage get you back and talk about that part as well. Yeah, uh, favorite topic, favorite topic of mine. And, you know, we've had 25 years of trying to get mine to mill to work and we still haven't got it. We still operate in silos. Just to give you an idea, um, the work I've done in in the past probably decade or so is telling me that there's about 30% of value sitting mm -hmm. on the table uh, available. Yeah, you're echoing something that we picked up from um, the 
ex-CEO of Dundee Precious Metals, Rick House. Um, mm. uh, they, they did a, you know, that famous taking the lid off transformation, I should say. But they actually became quite famous for that. But uh, even after that, he said that there's, there's a, an additional 30% in cost and productivity to be gained by proper integration uh, and, and making the company act as a digital enterprise or a digitally integrated enterprise, as opposed to a set of optimal uh, disciplines and major activities in the value chain. Without wanting to promote anyone, but Andy Shering's new book, um, yeah. Don't Digitise Your Rubbish, I think it says it all. You have to change your business processes and Absolutely. your organisation structure if you're going to do that. Of course, Andy was a previous guest on, on MindWarp as well. So anyone who's interested can go and have a listen to that episode and, and we'll uh, interview him on that new book of his uh, uh, soon enough. Speaking of uh, books, Gavin, as we come to the end of our time together, I can't believe it's the end already. It's just <laughs> blew past. <laughs> um, we always ask our guests, what's on your bedside table? What are you reading? Well, besides don't digitise your rubbish, I think um, I'm I'm a bit of an avid reader and I, I listen to a lot of audio books and, and a wide range. And I've been gradually going through a whole lot of the classics, you know, the, mm-hmm. the Gulag Archipelago 1984, your Brave New World, all those sorts of ones, yeah. and found that really interesting. And a really interesting book I just read was by the British comedian Ben Elton, um, right. who's famous for The Young Ones and um, Black Adder. He wrote a book called The Identity Crisis, and it was uh, brilliant, I thought, at doing what a comedian should do and just put the issue up in front of people and not actually have an opinion either way, mm-hmm. um, but just show how silly are we as a society at the moment. You know, it's a really interesting read, and uh, it's just it's a bit along the lines of 1984. It's a sure. it's a novel, but mm-hmm. behind the novel is is exposing uh, societal issues, which uh, I found really interesting. Anyway, I, I I'm going to have to read that book. Uh, I uh, I will definitely put it on my own reading list. I. I happen to also have worked through uh, both on Airy 4 as well as the Gulag Archipelago in, in, in the past uh, year. Seems like we've got some shared interests there. <laughs> well, I'm currently <laughs> currently trying to wade through Brothers Karamazov Dostoevsky. Oh, that's a good one. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I, 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 I think I read that probably 10 years ago, but it's, yeah. it's, it's fairly deep. So I'm going to have to go <laughs> back to that one. <laughs> exactly. Kevin, it was a pleasure to have you on. Thank you so much for sharing some of your wisdom. And uh, if people want to get a hold of you, uh, where do they go? Uh, Well, I have a website, uh, Gavin Yates Consulting. Some of my papers up there uh, that I've written over the years. And, um, yeah, feel free to to reach out or or get me at gavin at gavinyates.com. Well, thanks a lot. Uh, Thanks for your time. And uh, I'm sure all of our listeners enjoyed this a lot. And uh, Everyone, please be back for our for our next episode. Um, we'll be uh, interviewing Deborah Johnson. Go Google her in the meantime. There's a lot of wisdom about the barriers to innovation that we're going to be talking about in our next episode. So I'm looking forward to seeing you. Thanks a lot.